0: Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This is Carrie Peffley. I'm in the philosophy department here at Bethel. And I am Anne Marie
1: Koistra, and I
0: teach in the history department. And today we are joined by Rushika Haig, who is in the history department and will be talking to us about Virgil's Aeneid, chickens, and some love stories gone awry.
1: We have Rushika Haig with us today, and we're going to talk a little bit about. Virgil's Aeneid. So we'd like to ask our guests, could you just provide a little bit of a summary, which I know is a bad question to ask given the scope of the work, but tell, tell fans out there what uh, they might expect if they were to potentially
2: hear about the Aeneid. Wow. Well, the Aeneid is the great Roman epic it is, uh, it draws upon both the Iliad and the Odyssey. We see some of the same characters. It sort of starts at the end of the Trojan War. The Trojans have been defeated and Aeneas and his followers are fleeing the ruins of burning Troy. Um, but. It is um, a story then about him. So it has similarities to the Odyssey in that they're traveling and they're journeying. They have a couple detours and stops along the way. Um, but at the same time, um, it is something completely new and different, I would say. And it really is the story about the founders of Rome. And through the story of Aeneas and his followers and their journey. It tries to tell us something about the Romans and their world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good summary. That's actually. a great that's a summary. Great summary. <laughs>
0: yeah. So what excites
2: you about teaching this text? This is a text that I first read when I was a sophomore in college, um, having completed Latin and then moved on to Latin literature. Um, and, and did you read it in Latin then? Yeah, we read Fantastic. it in Latin. Um, and then we also had an English translation because we didn't translate every single part of it in Latin. Mm-hmm. We had to sort of understand the basic flow of the book. Um, and I, I will confess, I, I couldn't stand it the first time I read it. Absolutely. Absolutely hated it. Um, I don't know what this says about me. This is actually true of many of the books I love now. (laughs) But um, but part of it may also have been the fact that I was a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. There may have been a boy involved. Oh, boy. And this apparently, though, is not an uncommon experience because towards the end of our time in translating the Aeneid course, my professor said to us, she said, most of you are sophomores, right? And then she told us her tale of woe and the first time she read the Aeneid. And um, so spoiler alert, there is sort of a tragic love story that is for many the center of the Aeneid. And um, she told us the story of how she was a sophomore. She thought she had found the one. He was a junior. He was going off to study abroad. She took him to the airport. And he said, hey, honey. You know what? I don't think this is really going to work out. And, you know, I'm going to be gone for a semester and, you know, I need to be free. (laughs) And she said it was horrible and she over identified with Dido. And I was like, oh, I really am feeling this. (laughs) And she said it was one of the worst years of my college experience. So, but it does actually tell you something interesting that the poem pulls you in Mm -hmm. yeah, and it pulls people in and you see yourself in it and you know maybe when you're young it's the tragic love story and when you're older as i've gotten older um i find that i'm much more sympathetic to aeneas oh and that i i just feel like you know, he, he's really struggling with some tough things and tough decisions. And it's a story about sacrifice and, and ultimate goals and ends mm-hmm. and um, the things that you have to do and give up to mm-hmm. be a great leader. Right. And mm-hmm. didn't you tell me that when you
1: first read the Aeneid, that you threw the book across the room?
2: I may maybe? have thrown the book across the room uh-huh. when I was reading book four, which is the, the crux of the Dido and Aeneid story. And yes, I may have been a little upset and thrown the book across the room. Right. But given Dido's
1: reaction to what happened, the I jilting, did, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah that the, was violent, a- the violent throwing of the book across the room. Yeah, seems it seems, appropriate. It yes. does, mm-hmm. right? It does. Mm-hmm. So now that you're an older person and you can more um, be more sympathetic to Aeneas like what sort of uh, – you talked about the need to make difficult decisions in order to be a good leader. What What are some of those decisions that resonate with you?
2: Well, I mean the whole thing with Dido. Yeah. So um, one of the great things about the Aeneid and frankly I think what makes it better than either the Odyssey or the Iliad is that it has some amazing – women characters Mm -hmm. and one of the most amazing ones is Dido she's this beautiful intelligent powerful queen who is building her own city Mm -hmm. and of course Romans reading this would know that Carthage was the big rival of Rome right? and the defeat of Carthage in the Punic Wars is of course echoed in the story of Dido and Aeneas so you know Romans reading this know this they know all this history and background and so that of course resonates but it's not just a political piece it's a deeply personal story and you know she is the one for him Mm. I mean his first wife we don't know much about her he you know loses her as he's fleeing, Mm -hmm. you know, burning Troy, which, you know, when I was younger, I was like, how do you lose your wife? Right. (laughs) Um, But now I think about it, I think, well, you know, this is war. This is a city that is falling apart. Absolute destruction. Yeah, it's pretty easy to lose people. And he's distraught, right?" right? And so, but, you know, I mean, obviously she was his first wife, his first love, but Dido's the one, right? Yeah. And the they're equals, you know. They're both, you know, beautiful and powerful and intelligent. And of course, you know the the goddesses are meddling too, right? But, and and helping this this whole thing along. But it isn't a sacrifice unless she is the one. Boy, you know. Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he, he goes when he ends up in Italy, and Lavinia is. She's a cipher. She has no lines in the poem. This is right. the wife he eventually marries in Italy, who he then founds this great nation with. Right. She's a complete cipher in the poem. She is used as an adjective in the first 10 lines of it. Yeah. She has no personality. She says nothing. She's really a symbol. Dido's the one. She's this like vibrant, living, mm. breathing, compelling character. Yeah. And I mean, true. It's probably one of the worst. uh, Someone actually, Boris Johnson, the English Prime Minister, (laughs) characterized this as the worst breakup line ever. Honey, babe, it's not you. It's just I have to go and found a great nation. (laughs) I mean, you know, as as far as breakup (laughs) lines go, this is pretty horrible. Right. But he also said about Book Four of the Aeneid, with you know the crux of the Dido and Aeneas love story, that is the best book of the best poem of the best poet so nice wow well coming off of that other than
0: the dido and aeneas love story what are your other favorite parts of of the text
2: um aeneas in the underworld of course is amazing it's such an important book um later well first of all dido gets to lay into him when she meets him in the underworld i love that too tell him (laughs) All her thoughts on him sneaking out on her. So, I mean, that's sort of satisfying. And, but also it has some very interesting, um, sort of foreshadowing that Christians later look at and seem to think that it's prophetic and possibly Mm. prophesies the, um, coming of Christ. And then, of course, it's the, that book is really the crux of Dante. Who mm. we then read later because Dante's great admirer of Virgil Dante makes Virgil his guide through um hell and through purgatory of course he can't go on to paradise cuz right. you know. but um you know he's a great admirer of Virgil and um the whole scenes in the underworld are very um inspirational for Dante when he comes to start writing his own own epic um and then of course you got to love Camilla. Got to love Camilla. Amazon queen. How can we not love a poem that has an Amazon queen in it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. kicking butt left and right there in battle. She's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about the Aeneid is it's got some really great women characters in it. Yeah. Which... Well, as we've been discussing, you can't really say about the Odyssey or the Iliad. Right, mm-hmm, right. And, you know, everyone who's reading The Silence of the Girls um, yeah. talks just about that, that, you know, they don't have a lot to say. They're people to be, you know, captured or traded or – and you don't have – I mean, you have something different in – um, the Aeneid, I think. Yeah. Right? They're so. real
1: live characters. Absolutely. Well, and this is one too. Uh, I keep coming back. I keep harping on how much I love the goddesses. I love Venus and Hera, like working behind the scenes and also not behind the scenes. Like Venus is showing up and mm-hmm. Hera's is showing, like, oh, now we're going to do this. And it's just like, so fascinating. I feel like those characters really come to life and seem very human to me. Mm-hmm. So that's
2: those are some of my favorite parts as when they're like plotting and well, getting involved. And the very fact that, you know, Aeneas is the descendant of Venus cuz she sees his father and she's mm-hmm. just so smitten mm-hmm. that she comes down in human form and and has has, you know, this child with right. with him. So yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. Um, it, it's interesting, too. Um, you know, it becomes, Virgil says he wants it burned when he dies. Nobody does this, ah. thankfully. It becomes, it, it actually is an instant classic. You know, we sort of use that. This is an instant classic. It's maybe one of the first instant classics. Within three years, maybe even less, after Virgil's death, it's being used as a textbook Oh, so, wow. you know, young little Romans would troop uh-huh. off to school, and this is what they would get. Here's your copy of the Aeneid. Hold it close to you. Learn it. Treasure it. You know. So, I mean, the students have been complaining about this thing since, you know, like 30, right 30 AD. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if our students don't like it, they're in good company.
1: Yeah, that's know, true. So. And I will just point out that um, our students, unfortunately, Or fortunately, depending on your point of view, don't read a lot about the various games that are Mm -hmm. um, central to the text. And when I talked to um, the former history professor, Kevin Craig, about how I had made some decisions about what we could and couldn't read and had decided to cut out those scenes, he was saying that was actually really regrettable because that would have been the favorite parts of the romance. So sorry for those of you out there who didn't get to read that. That is something maybe to go back to and check that out. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I'll try to throw in a scene of gladiators fighting in the lecture to compensate. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you should be able to do that since you spend your free time actually watching that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's what I do. Fun fact about Professor (laughs) Haig.
0: So I want to ask about the, so you said that Virgil wanted it burned right away so why did he not
2: like it he yeah it's not quite clear if it's just one of those you know literary genius moments where you're yeah. unsatisfied with mm-hmm. the final product it's unfinished it ends quite abruptly mm-hmm. and oddly where we have our hero Aeneas killing Turnus, and then it just stops So it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about this. Why did he want it destroyed? Was he just, you know, a perfectionist? He Mm -hmm. said it just didn't live up to what he wanted it to be. Was it false modesty? Was it, um, some ambivalence about it? Because on one level, the Aeneid is Augustan propaganda, Mm -hmm. really. Right. So Virgil is part of this sort of literary and artistic group that Augustus gathers and it includes, you know, people like the poet Horace. Augustus is sort of that's a whole nother thing, but amazing character, fascinating, somewhat enigmatic character. One of the things he does is he would take all these writers and some of them actually fought against him. And he pardoned them and he brought them into his inner circle. And before you know it, they're all writing, you know, barely veiled, you know, odes about how wonderful (laughs) Augustus is. So on one level, the Aeneid is, you know, Augustan propaganda. It's to support the great Augustus. I mean, technically, he's descended from from Aeneas and by, you know, extension, the goddess Venus um, so part God. Part, part God. Lovely. So, um, I like you know, that in our leaders, in their part yeah, God. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when, when the Roman emperors, you know, sort of start styling themselves in that way, it's not much of a stretch. I mean, right. there is sort of, in theory, precedence for this. But, um, at the same time, you have these, these ambivalences in the Aeneid. So, is it really straight Augustine propaganda? Hmm. I mean, the ending certainly makes you question whether mm-hmm. it is because at the end, Aeneas doesn't behave in the best or most heroic ways. Sure, And so maybe he thought it would be not satisfying to the emperor. It's hard to know.
1: Hmm. Well, we always ask to our guests, um, so you've already mentioned connections between this and Dante. Are there other um, books, other thinkers, and it could be in humanities or elsewhere, like if you like uh, the Aeneid, what other things might you want to read or
2: check out? Hmm, I have to think about that one for a moment. Well, actually, there's sort of a interesting cottage industry um, oh. that, of books that sort of like The Silence of the Girls that reimagines these stories and yeah. tries to sort of go further pull out these stories a little more so there's a lot of interesting historical fiction that sort of plays off these stories i think um and you know way beyond percy jackson i guess um and, oh so, can um, you say more about i don't know
1: anything about percy oh jackson is he the hobbit guy is he did what, what did he do <laughs>
2: So uh, it's um Rick Riordan and he did a whole series he's done a whole series. Oh. So Percy Jackson if I am remembering this correctly is actually technically the son of Zeus. Oh. And so it's sort of a reimagining oh. of some of these Greek myths which of, of course the Romans sort of adopt wholesale. I had no idea. And Me um but you know with a, a young hero. So it's like I don't know is it safe to say it's like Harry Potter with Greek myths?
1: Okay. I think it is. Sounds
2: intriguing. Yes.
1: So so there's that. Okay. Um, Well, and I can just interrupt and say, like, I grew up having not read The Odyssey. So for those of you who want to cheat and get caught up on that, there is a great um, audiobook in our library's collection of The Odyssey, but sort of for children. And I thought that was great. So that's, again, just, you know, dumbing it down a little mm -hmm. bit for those of you out there who are a little bit like me.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it helps to sort of know the Odyssey and Iliad, though I don't think you have to mm-hmm. to read the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. No. Um, it, it does help to have a, a passing acquaintance with Greek mythology, more Although, than a passing yeah. acquaintance. Um, you get it, though, a little bit yeah, in you, that whole thing it.
1: with Dido, because he basically gives her the whole story. He does. So he gives mm-hmm. her the back back, don't the, the worry. back. story. Don't worry, you will get the Trojan War also. Right.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting stuff you know there's some there's some i don't know it, i think the fact that in my opinion maybe someone disagrees with me on this there isn't actually a really good movie about any of this oh. um kind of you know that's a something that i think people should look at and um you know why isn't also, there a great movie? I don't about know right. why there oh, is not you've got a great like, and 300 and Gladiator and other Right and you've got um, you know of course Troy with Brad Pitt as right. Achilles mm. um I was just listening to a debate between Boris Johnson and Mary Beard. Um, She's a a Roman historian, it's very interesting. Um, And he was sort of saying the Greeks were better than the Romans, and she was arguing for the Romans. And um, that was actually one of his his arguments. He said, you know, nobody's done a movie of the Aeneid. He said, you know, can you really picture Brad Pitt as Aeneas? He's kind of a mopey hero. And I thought, well, that's too bad. Maybe someone should do yeah. a movie Who, who of would you the... cast
1: in your movie version in of the, the Hmm.
2: I don't know. I have to think about that. I think there's a lot of good potential for Dido's. Oh. Yes. Well, don't who you would you- think?
1: Well, so for example- For example, well- you Yourself? No. No, absolutely okay. not. Just checking.
2: Absolutely not. Um, you know, I think Emma Watson could be a lovely oh. Dido, don't okay. you? I love that. Okay. I would watch, I would watch that movie. Dido. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. watch that movie too. Um, so I don't know who who do you
1: think would be a good Aeneas? Well, I'm I'm trying to think even like sort of my age range. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. I and plus I'm so out of it. I don't I don't know who actually even is acting these days. So well, we'll have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe if people out there have great suggestions, they can uh, email us and let us know what what we should do when we uh, write the screenplay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think this
2: would be good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And well you know if you like opera of course there's the great Purcell Purcell Dido and Aeneas mm. so we've got that too mm-hmm. so little opera
1: recommendation for the for the week for everybody mm-hmm. right exactly it's beautiful yeah. it is lovely. Well, there you go mm-hmm. now we usually do tend to um wrap up the podcast by asking folks uh, what they are reading this uh this this time for for fun. Do you have anything on the uh, nightstand that you're just reading for for fun?
2: Okay, so I've been working slowly my way through Why Did the Chicken Cross the World? Okay, tell us more. uh, It's basically about the history of chickens. (laughs) Did you know there are more chickens okay people are laughing and trying to keep it quiet in the room but okay no um yeah so there's like three chickens for every person on earth or something crazy like that there's there's billions of chickens wandering Mm -hmm. around the earth um and this basically okay so i keep we have chickens and so i've ended up becoming a crazy chicken lady apparently. (laughs) Um, So the crazy chicken lady thought that she should really read the book, Why Did the Chicken Cross the World? And it's about the bird that changed civilization. Like know, no hyperbole or anything here. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really interesting because they're not quite sure how chickens were domesticated and they seem to be related to the red jungle fowl that are found in Malaysia, but you can't actually domesticate the red jungle fowl. And there's one guy in Oklahoma who is trying to keep them, but they're very twitchy and sensitive and they tend to, if you pick them up too quickly, they'll just die of heart attacks. And so they're trying to figure out this wow. connection here. And if anyone knows about the tulip craze of the mid 1600s. I do. Yeah, I figured you might um, with the Dutch background there. Uh-huh. Which was a point where people were wildly speculating about tulip bulbs. It was kind of like the Beanie Babies craze of the early (laughs) 90s. Well, apparently there was a chicken craze in the mid-1800s in England where people were buying – like buying up fancy chickens, and they were going for thousands of dollars. Wow. And yeah. And so, um and apparently chickens were very important for Darwin. He spent wow. a lot of time studying chickens. He had been looking at other things. And then he finally uh, connected with this other scientist, um, who was also a minister. And he said, you know, you really should look at chickens. And so, it's, it, all in all, it's rather fascinating history. Wow. Yeah. And so eventually, I think we'll end up with the current backyard chicken craze. Okay. Yeah. Sounds so.
1: good. And and Carrie,
0: what's on your nightstand? You know, still working through, as I mentioned last mm. week, this New York Times 1619 oh, project, yeah. which I've mm-hmm. now recently hit a section on the influence on American music. Oh. Which inspired me to start watching Ken Burns' oh. jazz yes. documentary. So now Great. I'm sort of
1: simultaneously reading and then watching a Multimedia. documentary on on jazz. Nice. And I am reading the Library Book by Susan Orlean's, I think is her name, uh, which deals with the sort of it's it's kind of about the Los Angeles Public Library and how it had a massive fire in the 1980s. But she uses that as an entry point to talk about various other sort of library type things i it's for me so so i hate i'm sorry librarians i'm so sorry (laughs) because the librarians love it i apologize um but i'm it's not it's so so for me it's not as exciting as chickens probably not Mm -hmm. or as dido right all right well i think that's our time for um this podcast
0: thanks for joining us this has been bookish
1: at bethel